This is a People First Radio podcast. When wildfires were impacting her homelands this past August, Kelsey Kalana felt concerned that the actions of members of the media were adding to the trauma of the situation. In response, Kilana created a media kit designed to help those who might be approached to speak in times of crisis. It was also meant to help guide journalists assigned to cover a crisis in a community they don't call home. White House Kohala is Quiz Kelsey Kalana. I'm from Silk Homelands, which has been very briefly known as the Okanagan. Um, I live and was raised in Inkamapalux, which is the head of the, of the uh, Okanagan Lake, which is also known colonially as Vernon. And you've opened the media kit by saying that as a storyteller, you're responsible to contribute to the well-being of all life as directed by the oral storytelling laws that govern the Sikh people. Can you tell me a bit more about that idea? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I So it's our responsibility to take care of people and their well-beings. Um, it's our responsibility to ensure that we're following our chapter, which is our oral storytelling laws, in the way that care takes people's well-being. And so how we do that is we have what's called the four food chiefs and their energetic polarities, in a sense. Within those energetic polarities, there's different characteristics that um, we embody as silk people, and we are mindful of those embodiments when we're taking on certain energy. And so for me, I I always self-locate. And when I self-locate, I self-locate as a speedlum. And that's like my the energy that I always constantly carry. Um, a lot of people can carry all of them, and we do carry all of them. But I very strongly lean in the word of speed in, in the word of speedlum because it's the bitter root in our nation. Um, and when you harvest the bitter root and you take it out of the ground, and you we always open it up. We open the plant itself and the root, and we take out the heart. And it's an actual heart. It's a red heart and it's when you take out a speed lump, it's in the shape of a person a human and so that that's how i take on that energy is taking care of the heart and so we take the heart out and we pray um for the people um and then we replant it and it's a regenerative cycle so we take care of all different um generations through doing that practice and so in our nation that's our our way of um making sure that we're aligned with our our laws and our responsibilities as skyluck people um, and scale means all indigenous, like that's how we refer to as indigenous people. Um, and so it means that your body is attached to your land. Um, and so um, as a scale person, that's our responsibility. And so when the fires were happening, the first thing that we do to be trauma aware is we self-locate. We find out, okay, which, you know, which embodiment am I of the energetic polarities, which is for food chiefs. Um, so we have Chief uh, Intiti, which is our salmon, Chief Skimheast, which is our um, bear, and then we have our black bear. Um, we have Chief Sia, which is our Saskatoon berry, and all four have different embodiments. And so for us to protect ourselves, what we'll do is self-locate within which one of those we are. And then we know what work we have to do from that. From that, I self-located so that we create less harm for our bodies, so that we're focused on what we need to do. 
um, versus being like scattered and lost. And I don't know what to do. And like, this is awful. And like, you, you can start to really get into your turmoil. Um, and so rather than doing that, we protect our bodies. We've been doing that since, you know, time of creation. We've known how to caretake our spirits and our hearts since then. And so um, I really use that practice in everything that I do. You know, then the good, bad and ugly experiences of life, I do that. And so identifying as, as Chief Speedlum, um, it meant that, okay, I need to caretake the people's spirits right now. I need to take care of what that looks like. I need to do what I can within my within my own sector, industry, and talent, um, because our our nation is so focused on our occupations. And so our occupations are our life. <laughs> Um, and occupation doesn't mean a job. It doesn't mean you're nine to five. It means how you occupy your time. And so because I'm a writer and that's when people ask me what I do, it's like so complex to answer that <laughs> because I, I just say I'm a writer at this point and a storyteller um, <laughs> because there's so many forms of that. I really, you know, I really put my whole body time mind into this. And so because I have the teachings of how to caretake your well-being, I have the teachings of how to do that for Indigenous people that might not, might have those um, those teachings sleeping still. It needs to be reawakened still. And so I really lend that to people in these times of need. Um, and so that's that's how I use storytelling as a way to like really open this up and use my laws as a way to like guide the work that I that I did. <laughs> And so coming from that, you've created this media kit that is both for people who the media might be asking questions to in in times of of crisis, such as a wildfire, and also for journalists or media members who might be coming into a community or assigned to cover those events. Maybe starting from a place of, you wrote that trauma-informed reporting is just being culturally aware. Can you tell me about what that means, maybe from the media side of things and some of the things that maybe weren't culturally aware that were going on that maybe prompted you to create this? Definitely. I mean, and that's just <laughs> um, my sister and I have a company called Your Soul Sisters, and we host what's called the Kasapi Training. And it's a media training. Um, it started off as a media training. And that's exactly what we talk about within that training is we say that the being trauma-informed is truly being culturally aware because our cultures are already trauma-informed. And so we already have ways of caretaking our spirits and our well-beings. We have protocols that we go by when there's times of crisis, when there's times of grief. Um, we have protocols. And, and so when I first entered media, I actually didn't come in through journalism school. Um, I don't have a journalism background. And so... When I went into it, I actually was sought out and for my storytelling and my boss at that time was like, you need to get into journalism. Like, you really are a great storyteller. And I'm just like, I don't know if I want to do that. And then this crazy opportunity, like, I think it was like the next week after that came and um, APTN uh, alongside the discourse media were coming to the Okanagan Valley and we're asking like we just want indigenous storytellers like we don't care what your background is they wanted to create a space that came with no journalism background because they knew that journalism backgrounds are traumatic you know like forms of storytelling are extractive what you're taught is extractive and what you're taught is harmful and so when I got brought in, I was hired. I did all I so I really I did all the um, branding. I did I built Indigenous really truly from the roots up, and um, and so that's how you know my relationship is with Indigenous. And so yeah, I 
in doing all of that, I didn't know that media was so extractive as it was. I didn't quite understand the practices. And so it was when I was thrown into it, I was like, what? I was like, this is crazy. You can't just do that. And like, like you can't just knock on people's doors in a time of crisis that's wrong like I really questioned a lot of it and then um my my editor at the time our managing editor who is Lindsay Sample and one of my greatest guides in journalism um she's now the um the chief editor at the Narwhal and so you know she's a huge mentor to me in the journalism world she really built me as a journalist um and so I really appreciate her. And and so her and I would always have these funny conversations where we were like, where I was like, no, but you can't do that. She's like, oh, that's how journalists do it. I'm like, that's crazy. And then she says, she'll always say like, well, that's why we hired you because you know that, because you know, and you know how to do this in a good way. And this is exactly why we didn't want that journalist background is because we wanted someone to come with their storytelling laws, you know, equipping them to tell stories. Um, and so she really, you know, was a huge guide for me. And then um, shortly after Emily Gilpin took over and was the managing editor, and she was another huge, huge mentor in my life as a journalist. And she also just launched me and said, do what you need to do, do your stories the way you need to do your stories. And I was like, okay. So then I started doing trauma-informed stories. I started just using my own cultural protocol as a way to do storytelling. And then that's when I realized, I was like, just being culturally aware is (laughs) trauma-informed. It really is because there's so many protocols that go into times of grief, times of crisis. And that's what I based this whole guide on was those cultural protocols. Um, I asked media, do not go to our doors when someone died. Like, that's so wrong. We don't... um, One of our protocols is we're not supposed to be made um, a spectacle when something happens because we're energetically extremely powerful. We're the most powerful in what in that year of grief that we will ever be in our lifetime. So things that we say are prayers for our people. Um, So if I say out loud something that is maybe based in my emotion because I'm in my grief ceremony, then, you know, that's a prayer for my people. And then that's because you're powerful. And so when you're in your time of grief, actually community members will go to you and uh, in your scale of people will go to you and ask you for prayers because you're that powerful. And so you're, you're basically a really an extreme form of a manifester in those times. And so I say, don't, you know, don't ask people questions. Don't put them on the spot. They're in their ceremony right now um, for a whole year. So don't, don't run to their door, but maybe offer a space for them to come to you make yourself a safe person by showing up before an event happens, <laughs> by building relationships with community before an event happens. Don't just come into our community and extract from our people and have predatory behaviors. That's, you know, a huge part that I based this on was just our cultural protocols. You know, if you see like somebody, we always say like being aware of people who cut their hair, even like if their hair is really short, they cut it because they're in their grief ceremony. And if their hair hasn't grown, you have no right to talk to them. (laughs) And so, you know, those things are just, you have to be very aware that there's ceremonies happening constantly and that we have to be aware of how we're entering people's lives. And um, if they want to talk to you, they can. And they, you know, that's totally their right. But just like, don't be extractive and the, you know, um, door knocking and, and having the trauma porn, you know, what we call it is really harmful for our spirits and to keep opening up the media and seeing our people um, surviving all the time <laughs> is, is exhausting for us and, and it's harmful for us. And so it's, it's just high time that those, the narrative advances and those things change. 
You're listening to People First Radio. I'm speaking with Kelsey Kelana. She's created a kit intended to help communities in crisis and journalists manage media coverage in a way that doesn't cause further harm. I'm really curious about that idea. You talked about in the guide that whenever you do a story, you want to have it be as humanizing as possible, and you also want to avoid sensationalizing things whenever possible. I'm curious about how you find that balance between the two. Yeah, I think it's just like doing fact-based journalism at that time is appropriate. Um, I don't think that everything needs to be tied to a narrative all the time. I know that that as storytellers, we want to do that because it does humanize the situation. Um, It does create that human empathy, but it's just at the cost of our mental health a lot of the time. It's at the cost of our protocols. It's at the cost of our our culture and it's at the cost of our trauma. And so um, when we think of wildfires and the climate crisis, that is that is fully um, a colonial problem. <laughs> and so, you know, th- the fact that it's happening is a colonial problem. For us, we've been doing cultural burns forever. That is our relationship with fire. And we have a very close, intimate relationship with fire. We have teachings around fire. We know how to start fires and how to caretake our land in a good way. All of those things have been taken from us. And so um, it's really hard to come to our door <laughs> to ask those, you know, to be like, oh, well, we just want to humanize the story. And it's like, well, this is an issue that's your issue. (laughs) You know, like this is a problem that was created by the colonial problem. (laughs) Um, And so it's really important that people understand that we can't sensationalize um, these issues by bringing in all these people who are surviving in the moment. It's really disrespectful of what people are going through. And so I think doing fact-based journalism at the time and just knowing that that at the, in those moments, your job is to tell the facts of what's happening. Okay, the fire's this big. It's reached this many people. It's here. It's moving this way. It's, you know, the winds are picking up tonight. Those are things that are important to know. And if community wants to share, this guide is for to empower them to do that in a way that protects them and in a way that lets them know that they don't have to answer media. <laughs> because that's one thing I heard in the creation of this. I was calling all different communities and asking, like, what can I do? What do you need? Um, especially because those are still my communities. I'm Silk and Shaquatmik and Inkakatmuk. And so those all three nations were going through the wildfires. So calling all of them and saying, what do you need? What do you need? And they need support with media. They need support because sometimes one they were running on a one person band office because their community is on fire. And so they're like, I don't know how to do this. and I don't have the time to do this. And so that's why I'm like, well, we just need a copy paste for you and just send it out wherever you need it to go. Um, your list or I'll create the list, the contact media contact list and just have it go so that that way. It's like you can have those facts, you can have that information if you wish, and then the media has something to work with, but also really laying out that not to have it sensationalized. And yes, it can be humanized, but it needs to be Indigenous-led. It needs to be Scaloc-led if it's going to be humanized by Scaloc people. I'm really curious about maybe how the structure of bigger media entities especially plays into this in that I'm imagining, you know, if there's a time of crisis in a smaller community that doesn't have a a journalist who normally lives and works there, someone might get assigned to go there and they would feel this this real pressure of, I need to deliver a story for my boss by this deadline that's very close. How, How can that individual journalist who gets put in that situation navigate things without inflicting harm on a community? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I always really encourage people to push back because it's those times of it's this time of change that we need. And it's the voices that we need is the voices on the ground. And I know people are always worried about job security and worried about those types of things, especially as like a a budding journalist. But I think it's our responsibility as humans <laughs> to do what's right for other humans. And and we will never change the extractive practices of media if we don't push back. Um, and if we don't put our integrity on the line, you know, or, you know, without putting our integrity on the line, rather. Um, and so I, I always do that. <laughs> I, it doesn't matter what the situation is. I tell people all the time I'm willing to lose my whole entire career over anything that you ask me to do that is not right. Because for me, it's it's people first all the time. It's humans first. It's our care and our empathy and our needs first. Um, and I think that that's where we need to lead because that's that's trauma-informed journalism <laughs> is being willing to have those hard conversations with your editor and just saying, we're not doing that. I'm sorry. Like, we can talk about all the facts around it all we need to, but I am not going to a community and extracting from them and being you know, building trauma porn from it, because even having photos of a fire for us, if we open that in within our year of grief, or if we open that and we see those images and we see all of the destruction, it brings our bodies to a really low place, like physically brings us to a low place. And in the times of crisis, we don't have a means of ceremony because our ceremony is on the land that is on fire. And so it's a very heartbreaking thing to go through. And so I think, you know, going into community when they're trying to survive something and they're trying to survive this colonial problem on top of having colonial media at your door, <laughs> being like, well, we want to tell your story. We want to share. It's like not the time to do that. You know, there's yes, please share all the facts because they need that to survive, but they don't need to have a narrative attached to it. And that's why I named it hashtag narrative back because it's that way of holding and holding your narrative and knowing that um, we have a teaching that when we're in our time of grief, then we are to be held in high regard. And if our stories are not held in high regard, then we're not being honored in our grief. And so when we talk about um, this climate crisis that we're going through right now, it is grief for our people. And it is a ceremony that we tie our bodies to because when we see this destruction happening, it's the destruction of our hunting grounds, of our of of areas that we normally would have burned already and taken care of. And it wouldn't have to reach this massive level that it's been reaching. Um, And so really, you know, having the understanding that that people are really surviving the 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 fire right now and surviving the loss of their ceremony grounds and the loss of their agency to the land. Those are the things that I think a lot of journalists just don't think about when they go to communities. And I always really encourage journalists to really push back and be okay that to know that if you push back, that you will be taken care of and trust that because we need journalists like that in the world <laughs> who are willing to have those hard conversations and are willing to say that's not right because that's the only way that we're going to change this. A lot of our conversations so far will be super relevant to anyone who's working in the media and also relevant to anyone who's living in a community at a time of crisis in terms of, you know, know that you don't have to talk to media if you don't want to or if you don't feel capable at the time. I'm wondering, though, about maybe the biggest group of people in all of this, people who consume media. What do you think they need to to be aware of about this conversation? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, just... 
understanding that as consumers of media, that, you know, those narratives that are attached to it comes at a cost for a lot of people, especially Indigenous people. When I was reporting with Indigenous and the uncovering of the 215 um, children happened of my relatives in Tecamos to um, in what's been briefly known as Kamloops, that was when I really seen how consumerism drove a lot of how these stories were told. And real people really wanted those stories. They wanted to know more about what happened. They wanted like to they they yearn to detach themselves to the story. And that's that's a beautiful thing because as humans, we we are empathetic people. We're compassionate as as human beings. And so I I really told the media at the time on, you know, like I I took to Twitter instantly because I was just angry to watch how these practices were happening. And I said, like, there's the TRC is out there. Like, There's over 600 stories in that report. Why are we having to go and extract all of these right now during our grief ceremony? That is absolutely irresponsible. Also, that really impacts people's well-beings as they're watching it. Um, because there is such thing as, you know, that trauma that we if we witness trauma, then it actually is our body experiencing it. And that's why it's almost a form of self-harm. Um, and we say that like it, it is a form of self-harm to intake stories that are traumatic and and to sensationalize those stories because it's like, oh, I want to know what happened. Like, it's so bad, but I don't want to look away. And, you know, and it's just like being compassionate that these are real and you might see them, you know, written in written form. You might see them broadcasted, but this is real. And that, that media has, media is extremely not informed. They are extremely traumatic. And even how they release the information, they just, there was some 200 word articles on it and it was, so damaging to see like not any care put into it because they just wanted to be the first to get it out. Um, and that's why I always, that's why I wrote in the kit that not every story is your story to tell. And to understand that what I mean by that is as Skyluk people, we have the inherent knowing of how to caretake our people. That's our story to tell. That's what, that's a story we get to tell with our people when they're ready to tell it, if they ever want to tell it. And I've known a lot of our elders who shared their stories at that time were so grateful to tell their story because they said, I needed to be validated. I needed my stories to, to be known. And like, this really helped. And so there is, there is those stories that are healing for a lot of our people as well. Um, and those stories can be really well done and they can be really cared for in such a good way. But that's because it came from the person themselves. They had agency in choosing that, that they were ready to share their narrative. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. I really appreciate that kind of media that is, you know, that really listens to the people. And I think that you'll really be able to tell who those people are when you're consuming journalism, who those people are that, that you can tell had a very close relationship with that person as they're sharing a story. And I think that's very responsible journalism. And so when I do stories that are, um, that someone asks me to do, because I never search for a traumatic story, because I really believe in uplifting our people in the media. I really believe in advancing the narrative. Um, and so if somebody does want to share their story and it is rooted in trauma, I really caretake them. I caretake them through ceremony. I we have ceremony together first. We talk, we have conversations, we build a relationship first. I let them know that that's part of my practice and that I'm not going to just ditch them and never speak to them again after that. We become very close friends. And I know that that's very 
a lot of people will always be like, oh, well, then you know, there's bias and there's this, that and the other. It doesn't matter because that's protocol. And for me, it's like that integrity comes with my protocol and I'm going to do that. And it's I'm going to build a relationship because this person deserves safety when they're with me. And so I think there's a lot of you can tell a lot of those different things that um, that storytellers do. You can really see it through story sharing and how that happens. This is People First Radio. I'm Joe Pugh, and my guest is Kelsey Kalana. We're talking about a new kit she's created designed to help communities in crisis when dealing with the media. So how do we get there, maybe on a bigger scale, in terms of doing that kind of journalism more often that involves relationship building before something happens? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Um it's so important to just start showing up to do whatever you're doing, whatever community is doing that's near you, showing up for them. And I mean, going to every event that you see, like I at Indigenous, what we did there was we brought on two um, white journalists because it is an Indigenous led um, outlet. And so we brought on two white journalists because we wanted to change the media. We were like, we want to show people how to do trauma informed, culturally aware journalism and then send them back out into the world and have newsrooms change from those root those roots and i always bring up you know at the um aaron hemmins he's the journalist with indigenous news right now and he's still there and he's we always call him our brother he's a, such an amazing journalist and and we really worked a lot um with his good heart that he had and so we share you know we shared with him all of our protocols and our way of being and how to go into community and build those relationships and we hired him because he already started doing that before we he even applied um he's like oh i i called all the chiefs in the nation like i've already shown up to their different events and we're like wow like that's exactly what you need to do you need to start having conversations showing up building relationship um so now i'll just see him at events in the okanagan which i love like i'll see him at a powwow and he like will be there from sun up to sundown he does not leave he engages with everybody has conversations and now our nation really trusts him they pour a lot into him. They call him all the time. And they, you know, because they appreciate that he shows up without a camera and without a, a recorder. He just shows up as he is. And he he helps, you know, like he's the one who's helping set things up and putting things away. But it's being there. That's that's how we start those relationships is being there. And now people trust him with, with very, you know, sensitive stories. And so I always say, like, it's definitely possible, but you have to put the work in. You have to be, you have to be authentic about it, too, and not just... Being like, I just want to show up so that, you know, I, I have an in. It's like, no, like, because for us, when we take you in, we mean it and we will protect you. And like we for us, it's family, everybody's family. And so it's really important that um, that you show up in those kinds of ways for community way before crisis so that when crisis happens, they have someone trusted to reach out to. And they, you know, they have someone that they are like, oh, well, we already have a relationship with this journalist. Let's just work with them. So, yeah, that's, it's a huge part of um, caretaking someone's well-being. And as you kind of alluded to, it's not just that that is a bit different from how we've done things, but sometimes it can almost feel like that's the opposite of how you're trained. You know, you're supposed to not have any relationships with anyone that can influence your reporting. You're supposed to be this kind of objective and neutral person, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, And I would argue that because I'm what, like, when I'm interviewing somebody, there was a time that I was setting up a feast while interviewing someone because I wasn't going to just go there and report on the feast and be like, I have no relationship. No, I'm going to put my hands to the ground and we're going to help. Um, 
And so I brought a whole crew with me and we all helped set up this feast while interviewing and taking photos at the same time. And so it was a really beautiful process to go through um, and to be honored to share that story in an intimate way. And I think that that's so beautiful. Like Those stories to me are beautiful. The ones where you can tell they had a relationship and they're intimate and they really, I just love those beautiful, they really caretake someone's well-being in those stories. They caretake their narrative, most importantly. And so um, I always say, like, when we're shifting, when we're looking at how we have to shift media and how we have to start uncolonizing our practices within media, that it's something that it just needs to happen. <laughs> it just needs to happen. Um, and that we need to do that through relationship building and being meaningful about it. And knowing that a relationship strengthens your story. It doesn't take away from it. And so I always, you know, that was something that... Oh, in the, the discourse media that they taught me, they were like, no, you having a relationship strengthens your story. So at the end of it, what we do is I'll write what's called a kinship protocol. And, and they, we have a we have a law about that. And so our protocol is, is that we announce how we're tied to family. And so that's what we do at the end of our story, rather than having like an editor's note of like, oh, this person is related to this person. Just, you know, sharing that information, being transparent, which is important. We strengthen it by calling it a kinship protocol and saying, I'm proud that this is my family member and I'm proud that they shared this with me and um, that I was able to honor their their story. Um, and that's that's how we share those those things within a story and, and still be transparent and still deliver accurate and beautiful journalism. <laughs> and so you've talked about today and also mentioned in the kit that both creating and consuming media stories in times of crisis can really have an impact on your mental health is the way to kind of mitigate that as best you can, is it really all about relationship building? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Um, because once you have a relationship built, the person that you're doing the story with will tell you that, that this is their protocol. They'll feel safe to say that. Because a lot of people, when you're being interviewed by media, it's so official and it's so scary, especially for people who don't always talk to media, right? Um, and especially when you're going through crisis, you feel like you have to. <laughs> and you, you feel like, oh, I, ha I have to share. Like they asked me and it's like, no, you don't. And you don't especially need to share somebody, share with someone who has had harmful journalism in the past. So I always really encourage people to read through a journalist's stories to see what kind of stories do they tell? How do they tell the stories? We have a list of journalists banned from our community because of their extractive practices. Um, and I really use my community as a way to understand how communities work with journalists. And so when there is really intimate stories that need to be told, they do reach out to me. Or if someone's reached out to them, they ask me, how is this person in media? How is, you know, what's their reputation? Sort of what do they have to gain? And then I bring them journalists who are, who I trust, who I've worked with, who I've witnessed as being really great storytellers and really great caretakers. And that's, that's just the responsibility we have as scale of people is to always caretake our people in every single facet. And so if I get asked any of those questions, I do that. I, I know the journalists and I understand how people work. And so um, a lot of times they just want to come in to extract, to tell their narrative, um, to tell their story, but they want to use our, our intelligence to do that and our way of life to do that. And they want to sensationalize, you know, any narrative that they can. And so I really make sure that people understand that they're, that there's, there's those journalists who will do that. And often it's because of their editors. It's because of their outlet. It's because of the broader, you know, way that in that journalists are taught. And so 
it's, I don't want to say it's not their fault, but at the same time, we can hold journalists accountable as well. We can um, make sure that they're telling our story in a good way. And, and if we can't change those things and we have, we, I need people to know that we have the power to hold our narrative in high regard when we're going through grief and trauma. And so I always, yeah, I really base everything in that and just knowing that relationships help those things. (laughs) Relationships will help a Indigenous person tell you, I'm in a time of protocol and I can't um, share this right now. They would never tell a typical journalist that. They would just say no and just shut it out, you know? So relationships matter in how a story is told because you can even tell that story. You can tell the a story that this person has protocol and we can't tell that story to me. That's a story in itself is <laughs> like, okay, then why, then what is that, you know, and what is that protocol about? And like learning more about why we don't just extract in these times. So yeah, it's, it, I think relationship is very a powerful tool. <laughs> And of course, there's different kinds of journalism, right? Like uh, in a time of crisis, it's going to be a completely different story and approach to a, some kind of accountability issue, say. Yes. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to bring to the conversation today? We've got just a couple of minutes left. No, I think we've covered everything. I think just, you know, I always like to just end with just sharing for anybody that this that this toolkit is really, it's, it's free. It's accessible on indigenews.com. You can download it, copy, paste. You can use it in any single way that you want because it's there for people to caretake their narrative. And it, there no credit needs to be given. Um, you can just copy, paste, embed it into your own um, branding of whatever you're doing, whatever work you need to do. Um, it's yours and it's, it's there because it's an offering. It's For me, it's an offering of love for people in their times of need. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Kelsey Kalana speaking about a new media kit designed to help avoid harm when reporting on communities in crisis. People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners.